Welcome and Happy New Year. Longevity in Aubrey Gray. Aubrey Gray works on developing medical innovations that can postpone age-related illnesses, focusing on rejuvenation or repair of molecular and cellular damage. Co-author and author of several books, co-founder and founder of several organizations and nonprofits, such as SENS, now focusing on the Lev Foundation. In this episode, we do a deep dive on the Lev Foundation, what they're working on, the mouse studies and more, Yamanaka factors, you name it, we get into it. If you like this type of content, please subscribe and like because every bit helps and we will be putting out new episodes two to three times a week and at 10,000 new subscribers we'll be doing a monthly live stream and other really cool things that I have planned as well so let's stay curious learn about Aubrey Gray and the present and future of longevity in this episode of the Learning of Lowell show I was uh, talking with Mark Hamelin who uh, I believe you know uh, for our episode that just went live today and I was like oh I'm gonna be talking to Aubrey today so uh, he uh, funny enough had a good question I thought I'd be the first one to go with uh, he asked, um, uh, I'm just going to quote it directly because that, that seems a little uh, easier. Why we still don't have any therapies based on his ideas published 20 years ago in his breakout paper, an engineer's approach to anti-aging medicine, and what could be done to accelerate the, po- the progress? You know, what were the bottlenecks, that type of thing? So, uh, um, as Mark, of course, knows, um, progress has been pretty good. But the fact is, really difficult technological uh, challenges usually take a long time to come to fruition. Now, over most of that period, I would go say over the first 15 of those 20 years, uh, the main problem was money. The, the science was very much held back by budgetary constraints. I would say for the first decade, um, for, the, for the 2000s, probably by a factor of maybe three. You know, it was really, really being held back. I was doing my absolute level best to bring money in, and so were other people, of course, but it was only very inadequate. But it was a lot better than nothing, which means progress was made. Um, And, of course, progress was made by other people as well, not necessarily for the purpose of um, postponing aging, but rather in regenerative medicine and other medical approaches generally. And... Long and short of it is that eventually it kind of added up to a sufficient critical mass that, first of all, academics started becoming a good deal more positive about this whole damage repair approach than they had been initially. And then around the same time, very shortly afterwards, one or two and then a few more and then a few more of the more courageous um, early stage investors, angel investors, you know, seed investors started to come out of the woodwork and think to themselves, you know, some of this looks like it might be close enough to fruition to actually make some money. Um, So we started getting interest from such people. And the thing about investors is they tend to write bigger checks than donors do. So um, we embraced this very much. We ran with it. And so my foundation spun out in the end about half a dozen companies. Um, basically, the projects had been gestated within the foundation, purely funded philanthropically for however long it was taking. And we spun them out as, uh, as startups. And it was very, very effective. Um, and of course, things have moved on at an accelerating pace over the past few years, with more and more investors getting involved and writing you know, bigger and bigger checks and companies like Altos coming along and um, and you know Retro and New Limit and other uh, people, companies that are really quite big, including ones that are run by real long-term crusaders in the field. So good examples there would be in silico medicine and also BioAge, big companies now. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, it's a very hard challenge. So the short answer to the question is, you know, I'm not complaining about how fast it's gone. I don't, you know, we've, 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 we've gone as fast as I, I think it would have been reasonable to expect. But also, I think that at this point, we can really have pretty good confidence that we're getting close. Awesome. I think um, a, a quick follow up to that is uh, one of our listeners, uh, I, I, cued, I cued everyone and it got like, there's so many, there's probably like my number one response, like, oh, you're talking to Aubrey, here's a bunch of questions. But uh, one person, there's a couple of them that were asking that you made this prediction that within like 15 years, we were like 50% uh, chance that we would uh, be out of the death spiral that is longevity. How do you see, how do you see where we are today? And how do you see Lev fitting into accelerating that timeline? So yeah, 15 years is my current prediction. I didn't go mm -hmm. as low as 15 years until a year or two ago. Um, uh, but yeah, 20 years ago, I was saying 25 years, which means mm. that we've only gone half as fast as I would have liked. However, the good news is if you divide those 20 years into two parts, then for very much the reasons I was giving a moment ago, the financial constraints, there was a lot of slippage in the first tw 10 years, and there's been almost no slippage in the next 10, in the last 10. So um, I, I, I'm feeling pretty good about my predictions now. And it's not just the longevity escape velocity milestone. Um, I've also for a long time been talking about this other milestone in laboratory work, which is for mice, you know, talking this thing called robust mouse rejuvenation, which is not defined as, you know, living long enough to live forever, because that's much harder in a short lived organism than it is in a long lived organism like humans. In fact, I very much doubt that we'll ever reach longevity escape velocity for mice. Um, but still, it's, uh, I set the numbers in terms of how much postponement of aging we would need starting in middle age, um, so as to be like enough to impress my colleagues in academia, you know, because that's really what matters. At the end of the day, the public don't listen to me, they listen to Oprah Winfrey and her ilk. Mm. And she got where she is today by keeping a finger on the pulse and getting a good sense of the expert consensus in a particular area. So, of course, I'm just one person. If the bulk of my more vocal colleagues, you know, the people like David Sinclair and George Church and, and Ned Barzilai and Brian Kennedy and so on, if they were coming out and saying the same thing as me, basically, maybe not quite as optimistically, but saying at least, you know, yes, we're in striking distance, then it's going to change the whole um, structure of um, how this is on, how how we go about this 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 thing overnight. It's going to become a proper war on aging, uh, you know, with with really really big government money and you know everyone being focused on it. Same as um, you know, same as the real war, really. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's what I want to bring about. And that, again, like the time frame has slipped, of course. I, originally, I said 10 years, and it's obviously more than 10 years already. Um, but now I think it's only three or four years. And a large part of why I think that is because a lot of the components of, are in place. We've got a lot of therapies that have been applied to mice in middle age and individually have postponed aging a bit. And so our flagship project at my new foundation, LEV Foundation, is to put a bunch of those things together. Yeah. And, you know, that's why three weeks ago I bought a thousand mice. And um, you know, in a month and a half or so, we'll be starting the experiment for, in earnest. Um, four different interventions, diverse 
different types of damage repair um, in various combinations. And of course, we shall see what happens. And this will be the first round of a rolling research program in which we, you know, take another thousand mice and do a bunch of different things to them and so on until we get there. But we are pretty hopeful. Our mice will be 18 months old when we start treating them. And these will be a nice strain of mice that would normally live about another year, year and a bit after that. Um, we want to extend that by a further year. And I'm optimistic. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. And um, I don't know if you're a fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but I've uh, always felt that with all the research we're doing on mice that they're like slowly becoming our overlords and stuff like that. But um, I was curious of the interventions that you're doing on mice. Could you talk more about the, the different strategies that you're going to be the different therapies and that you're going to be um, trying out with them? Certainly. But yes, um, you know, I grew up in the UK in the 70s okay. and 50s. I, um, I went to Cambridge, same as Douglas Adams. I, um, I'm a very big fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, well, uh, so I can only go into rather superficial um, uh, description of this at the moment because we are still um, finalising some of the details. Um, but broadly speaking, there's going to be four therapies that we're going to be looking at. And as I say, all of them will be applied starting at 18 months of age. One of them is the um, gold standard at this point in terms of slowing aging down rather than damage repair. So this is a kind of control, really. And that's rapamycin, which has been used in a number of studies now um, and definitely has, um, you know, very reproducible positive effects, even if you start late in life. Then the second one is a stem cell therapy. Um, here we're going to be using blood stem cells. Uh, which again, you know, have um, shown if you take young, if you if you, if you basically uh, replace some of the young, some of the blood stem cells in old mice with young ones, then they live longer. Then there's telomerase, which has been used in a few studies over the years, especially a rather high-profile recent one led by Liz Parrish and George Church, um, in which telomerase was supplied and um, caused a good life extension effect. And the last one will be a synolytic, and that's actually the um, one where we're still in the final stages of deciding which synolytic to use, but basically a drug that, or a, an intervention that selectively kills senescent cells. And again, you know, we've had um, some lifespan, lifespan data there. So we believe that given we're taking four things, all of which individually can um, extend lifespan in mice a little bit, even if you start in middle age, then putting them together, we've got a good chance of getting something. And of course, we've got different groups with different subsets of these four interventions. We've got one group that gets nothing, one group that gets all four, and eight other groups that get various combinations. So, um, uh, yeah, we're quite excited. That sounds very exciting. Too. Um, and, there... and I should probably say a little bit more about the study. So we were measuring longevity. That will be the, 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 you know, the, 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 the main readout. But of course, we also very much want to know about function. We want to know about health span. So we'll be doing all the standard measures. There'll be some measures that we're doing which involve killing a small number of the mice at various time points to um, see how they were getting on, you know, in various ways. And there are some other uh, measures that are to do with, you know, behavioral stuff or whatever that, um, that are not invasive, don't require killing the mice. So we've got a whole panel of those that we'll be doing at the same time. And my current intention is that we're going to be putting everything out on the web, like updated every week, you know, mm -hmm. telling everybody how things are going, because we're not constrained in the same way that most researchers are, either in academia, where they have to have, you know, 
terrible secrecy in order to be able to publish before anyone else does, or alternatively, in industry where they need secrecy for you know IP reasons. We don't have those problems. Makes sense. And um, I would, there's a great author, Brandon Sanderson, which you, you may enjoy if you like uh, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's uh, but on his website he has like a percentage bar and stuff. Like he's like the most on guy. I'll, I'll send you his stuff because like how he updates the his audience is just I don't know anyone who does it as well as him. And it sounds like you're going to do very similar things to that. The uh, for for the mice and for rejuvenation that was talked about on your website. Was there any plans or thought into using Yamanaka factors or anything? Or how do you see if there if if it's not now like do you see something like that happening in the future? Sure. So yes, partial reprogramming is undoubtedly one of the most exciting areas in rejuvenation right now. And of course, vast amounts of money are going into um, uh, taking it forward. And, um, you know, I have some reservations about doing partial reprogramming using Yamanaka factors. I don't really believe that there is sufficiently persuasive evidence yet to say that in humans anyway, it will be safe. I believe that the cancer risk is real. And that's why I'm very interested in other approaches to doing partial reprogramming that have been um, uh, conceived by, especially by Mike West at, I, at age X. Um, but uh, yes, um, Yamanaka factors, partial reprogramming in one form or another is quite likely to be one of the interventions that we test in the second round of, of Thousand Mice that we will plan to um start doing things too in probably um about the third or fourth quarter of 2023 um we've got other things on our list of course um neutral blood exchange which I'm, i i guess a lot of people will have heard of where um the plasma is um partially removed from a mouse and replaced but with basically saline that has um albumin in it you know this has, has shown quite interesting results uh in terms of rejuvenation, we may want to continue restricting ourselves to things that have shown actual lifespan results, but we don't know for sure that that's what we're going to do. So there's a lot of planning going going on at the moment. And I was um, oh, go ahead. No, and that's it. Okay, um, I was curious. Uh, what? So I, I was reading through your website. I was doing as much as I can to to read. It. So this is a great interview because there's so much we can color in in terms of the the, the drawing here, but. How, I saw a lot of partnerships happening. I saw things, and I'm hearing, you know, you're doing stuff in-house. How How is Lev situated? Is it going to, like, how do, you, how do you see it as a, as a structure? Like, what's, what, what is it, the unique stuff that you're going to do in-house? What are you going to partner with? Like, how, do you, how are you going to set it up so you can do the maximum impact? So, first of all, initially, we're actually not going to have a central facility of our own. Mm -hmm. We're going to do everything extramurally in one way or another. So the work I've been talking about so far will be done in Syracuse, in upstate New York, um, at the headquarters of one of our, well, probably, yeah, unequivocally, our most successful spin-out company from Science Research Foundation, ICOR. Uh, they do a lot of different things now, but one of their divisions is as a contract research organization doing this kind of study. They are the go-to people in the world for this, and they have been for a little while now. Very, very well respected. They really know what they're doing. So um, we're delighted that we've been able to partner with them on that project. Then we're also doing a couple of projects related to cryopreservation and cryonics, of whether of organs or of brains or whatever. Um, uh, those are, again, two for-profit companies, but 
um, led by people who used to work for me. Um, and uh, so, you know, very excited to be pushing that forward. I believe that cryonics research is something that is so tragically and scandalously neglected. And of course, the people that it can potentially save, the lives it could potentially save, are mostly people who won't live long, long enough to benefit from the rejuvenation therapies that um, we're also working on. So, you know, it's not as if one is more important than the other. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And um, I guess we, we kind of dived right in, but I just want to give people a quick snapshot. What is Lev's thesis compared to the other thesis out there in terms of like damage repair? Obviously, we're, we're like, we're hitting a number of different angles. So I'm just, um, you seem like I, I mean, you, like, uh, I was look, reading your Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, and you've got like mathematics, you got so much you're, you're up into, so... I'm... The best way to answer your question there is to go back 20 years, 22 years. Mm. Um, back then, you know, people knew that aging was bad for you, but they'd more or less given up on figuring out how to do anything about it. It was a bit, you know, gerontologists were a bit like seismologists. You know, they, like, they don't have any actual aspiration to stop earthquakes from happening. So, um... um Basically, this was because everyone had decided that the only way we would ever be able to postpone the health problems of late life would be to make the body run more cleanly. In other words, damage itself more slowly than it naturally does as a consequence of its normal operation. And they basically figured out, well, the body's just too complicated and the, um, you know, the creation of this damage that's eventually pathogenic is just so inextricably intertwined with the things the body needs to do to keep us alive that you know, it's basically a non-starter. It had become pretty much entirely like unacceptable even to mention intervention and actually doing anything about aging in a grant application, for example. So my big idea, my big eureka moment was to realize that actually damage repair may be easier than damage retardation, so to speak. And um, that, you know, that's obviously it took about a decade to become a mainstream concept, but it definitely has been mainstream over the past 10 years. Um, however, what it leads to is this concept that I called longevity escape velocity, LEV, which is simply that if you're actually turning back biological time, you're actually repairing damage and making someone biologically younger, then you can do it repeatedly. You can do it as often as you like. And in particular, uh, you don't have to do it perfectly from the beginning, but it'll be as if you did. In other words, if you have damage repair therapies that are fairly good, right, and you, um, you apply them and you maybe get 20 years of extra life, then great. But then, you know, however often you apply those therapies that repair, let's call it the easy damage, right? Um, if it, uh, since they don't repair the difficult damage, the difficult damage on its own is going to be able to kill you. Um, so we have to improve the therapy, but we've got those 20 years in which to improve the therapy. We've bought, bought ourselves that time. So the idea then is that we will be able to re-rejuvenate the same people 20 years later with, you know, damage repair 2.0 and so on. And so the um, definition I gave that I called longevity escape velocity was simply it's the minimum rate at which scientists will need to be improving these therapies over time in order that people who are receiving the most recent therapies at any given time will stay one step ahead of the problem and will not get biologically older as they're getting chronologically older. And that's the thing that I believe we are now with 50% probability only about 15 years away from achieving. And it's also the name of the new foundation. <laughs>
because basically, um, you know, the concept of rejuvenation has very much become mainstream. That's what my journal was named after starting in 2004. You know, that's been the focus. And, you know, that's kind of sold now. But still, most mainstream people run away very fast when you talk about longevity, escape velocity, even though, to my mind, it's an inescapable um, corollary of being able to do significant damage repair. I've, um, it's something I've, I, I, I agree. And I, I think it's something that makes a lot of sense because we have all these horrible illnesses like Alzheimer's, but with the, the right interventions, it's like we won't cure the illness, but we'll just keep staving it off like we'll repair it enough. And we'll just keep like kind of rolling the ball and eventually we'll get to the point where we'll cure the illness. But I see like what you're saying, like just keep rejuvenating. Um, there's a great uh, book series. I think it's called um, the Commonwealth series where they just like get into these states where they get in like a machine and like they slowly like rejuvenate the different cells. So they, they're like functionally immortal, even though like technically they have to do something every like 20 or so years. So I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, having a big vision, it helps align people with you and what you're doing. If you say like, oh, our goal is to make it 2% better <laughs> over the next five years, like, I don't know, it doesn't catch the headlines, but I think what you're saying is like really exciting for a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, you're going through all this like turmoil, like when you're younger, um, you know, 20 years ago, you can't even put up a grant application without people being, you know, like, oh, you know, not giving you funding and which, you know, it's your whole future. How do you, how did you survive that frustration? And I imagine like it's still going on now a little bit. It's been getting easier over time, but like, how do you just personally weather that? It's always easier to get money for something that is already mainstream, that mm. basically a lot of people already think it's sensible. And I don't do that. I'm you know, very much the, I focus on being the tip of the spear and, and being the heretic who you know, opens doors that other people can then walk through. So you're quite right that fundraising has always been a real challenge uh, for the stuff that I want to do. And um, so now, uh, you know, that's still true. The um, LEV Foundation has started out with a significant corpus that has allowed us to get these projects up and running, uh, you know, right at the beginning. But we definitely need to raise more money going forward. I mean, um, you know, I, I guess since it's the end of the year, this is something I should specifically be saying because everyone's thinking about, you know, tax and so on. Um, absolutely, you know, we have a nice big friendly donate page. We have, um, you know, anyone can anyone can send us send us money, and every every dollar helps. Um, we've got very big plans, and those plans are definitely limited by resources. Uh, but yeah, in terms of whether it's got easier, I mean. It's got easier for the field as a whole because more more and more of the field has become generally mainstreamed and you know, accepted. But it hasn't got easier for me, and the reason it hasn't is my own choice to continue mm. to be at the tip of the spit. Is um, is there anything that like encouraged you to do that? You know, like there's so many different. Th you know, like sometimes people pick the easier path. You know, like that's a it's a conscious effort to keep doing the hard thing for the benefit of everybody. Yes, um, I, I I guess I'm just that kind of guy, you know. First of <laughs> all, I, I, I you know I, I I guess inherently I feel I want to make a difference to the world, and the way mm -hmm. you make a difference is by doing stuff that other people are not doing. And secondly, um, you know, I seem to have a thick skin, you know, um, you know so on. Uh, but also, obviously, I've been quite successful in doing this, and you know, the more one succeeds in doing what one wants to do, the more encouraged one is to carry on doing it. That makes sense. Um, an idea I've been wondering about, especially with nonprofits, is the 
like the scalability, the sustainability of what they're doing when you have to keep going out and asking for things. And um, so I've wondered, is it possible to do like an open source licensing where you develop technology, you open source it to a great extent so it's easier for other people to build off of it, and then you just license it kind of like what the VIST does or what other uh, research organizations do so that you have like somewhat of a like a, a, a repeating funnel to make it easier for you to keep growing? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, this is more a question about the whole ecosystem rather than about any individual organization. And I completely think that it makes a lot of sense to have, um, you know, a diversity of structures within the movement so as to be able to suit all tastes, so to speak, you know, to suit everyone's constraints, everyone's preferences. And that means people um, who are figuring out how to get promoted or how to get rich or whatever. It also um, focuses on, you know, what when someone's already wealthy and they want to help, you know, what kind of um, organizations they think they'd like to help. Some people who made their money in the private sector, you know, just don't believe in philanthropy and they just think it's, you know, in, in, an inefficient way to, um, to pursue technological progress, and some some other people think that's think think the opposite. So yeah, I mean, I think we've seen this. We've seen like you know, uh, DAOs, uh, uh, you know, uh, distributed um, organisations, uh, springing up in this space over the past couple of years. We've seen uh, a whole new granting structure, a very um, a very important entity uh, was created a couple of years ago named Impetus, which has completely rewritten the idea of how decision make decisions are made in relation to grant applications. Basically, that the decisions are made almost instantaneously, like over a period of a couple of weeks rather than like a year. Um, and this is very, very important if you want to save lives and make sure that money goes to the right place. You don't want it sitting in the bank. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, lots of different diverse, diverse ways of doing things have come up. And I think that's really excellent. Sense the um so uh I think it's Picasso who said that uh great artists steal or and uh, some artists borrow but great artists steal or something like that and so I was wondering with all the organizations you've been a part of and uh, where you're at now what what have you taken from the past to implement it Lev what are you experimenting with just like structurally because there's just so much to go on there's so much to do uh, and I'm always wondering like you know what are people taking as they go along in the life. Um, well, a lot of it is to be lean and mean and make sure that um, potential donors like the look of you because you are not wasting their money on yeah. um, overheads. Um, a lot of it is to just, you know, be doing something inspiring. You know, it's a, lot, a lot of the reason why I do so much media and I travel and give so many talks is because that's the way to get people to understand that this really is the world's most important problem. Um, a lot of it is have the right team around you, of course. You know, I've definitely learned a few things over the years about that. And I am just overjoyed at the team I've got right now, whether it's the staff, whether it's the board of directors, you know, people who are as committed as I am to this mission. That makes sense. And um, when, you, when you find partners to work with, like I-Corps, um, what are the criteria you're roughly looking for? Like, how do you assess them? There are so many things to look for when we're looking for, you know, it's, it's really like, like, I'm making the same kinds of decisions in dispersing money that's been given to me in LEV Foundation that the people who give the money to me are making. It's a question of, you know, skills, trust, all the, all the usual things. 
So ICOR, you know, they are head and shoulders ahead of everybody else in terms of their suitability for this. In terms of all of those, all of those boxes, they take all of them, right? They've got mm -hmm. the experience and the credibility and the staff and the, um, you know, the expertise to do these things really well. They've also got absolutely, you know, cast iron commitment to the longevity mission. You know, they want they want to succeed. They are their hearts are in the same place as ours. Makes sense. Um, how would other people that are, you know, either in a research lab or out there building something, how do they go about, you know, pitching themselves to be a part of uh, Lev's uh, ecosystem? So, um, I do a lot of work outside of LEV Foundation, right? I, because I've been around a long time and I have the biggest network and I'm the top Google hit, you know, people come to me all the time asking how... Uh, you know, asking for help of one sort or another, mm. asking for advice and so on. And of course, I can give help and advice um, way beyond what LED Foundation itself can do. Um, uh, not just because we have a certain, only a certain limited budget, but also because uh, there are people who are just better suited. You know, for example, people will come to me wanting to know how they personally can help. And they may have an entrepreneurial background. I may partner them with uh, someone with an academic background who doesn't know how to run a company to make a team that um, you know, is attractive to investors. Uh, you know, that's just one example. Um, mm -hmm. And and when um, when any idea comes along, of course, I'm interested in giving feedback and so on, a scientific idea. And uh, you know, again, it's just, a lot of it is networking. Right. Tell me, how much of your time do you think is dedicated to just raising up the next generation of people? making sure that there's another crop of scientists ready to, to hit these hard topics? I feel very strongly that helping to educate the world uh, on this is a huge part of my job. By virtue of having become you know, a high-profile person in this field and stayed there for a while, I've been able to have a lot of influence. And this applies not only to youngsters, though it certainly does apply to youngsters. Um, uh, it also applies, you know, to people with their own skill sets wondering, you know, maybe they've been successful in their chosen area and they're looking for a new challenge. Um, you know, so, uh, and, and of course the general public, you know, getting people out of what I've often called the pro-aging trance, the um, you know, tendency to make excuses for aging and, and, and convince oneself that it's a blessing in disguise. We need a lot less of that. And so I go about um, ridiculing that quite a lot. Is there, um, so one, one person who wrote in was asking if you guys are going to do something like a summer internship program. I, I suspect based on how they asked the question that they're in college, is that something that you guys do or will be willing to do? The Salesforce Research Foundation, we have a, certain, a summer internship program which started quite a long time ago in which I was able to expand a couple of years ago by essentially relocating my director of education, Greg Chin, to the Buck Institute, uh, where he's been able to uh, pay a bit of money for him to be able to grow that thing. Um, so there's a yeah, very thriving internship program at the Buck and also still a new one, well, not the, well, the same one, but run by a new person um, at Sense Research Foundation. At LEV Foundation, we currently aren't doing that. We don't really have the resources, but I did seed fund something that was a kind of a branching out from there, another kind of education thing, which started out in its first instantiation as a retreat, a three-day retreat. It was called Less Death, happened over the summer, and um, it was 
just the most blowout success. Just 50 people that came along and got taught a bunch and got connected with each other and generally got integrated into the community. Um, Mark Hamalainen, who uh, um, ran with that when he and I um, inspired it, uh, he uh, is taking it forward in an expanded manner this year. There's probably going to be four of these, and this, and from now on, it's going to be uh, joined at the hip, so to speak, with a fellowship program, which is a kind of online education course. So yes, absolutely, we're very interested in making this kind of thing happen, whether it's summer internships or you know, lots of variations on that theme. Makes sense. Um, the and his episode just went live today. It was actually uh, it's really cool to hear all the the, the demo, uh, uh, democratizing of education. Like we have the internet, so it's really cool that these uh, type of resources exist. Um, I have one uh, writing question. I'm just going to quote it because you know, I I still like a paraphrasing apparently. Um, is he, is he, you, uh, privy to any knowledge the general public is not in, uh, that's a weird, really worldly question. Basically, how would, are you aware of any information that makes you feel like you should be bullish at Lev? And bullish in this context basically means, um, it's going to go much, much well, uh, much, much better than, um, anyone outside would know about. I mean, you're in it, you're putting a lot of time into it, so I think that's kind of like a biased thing. I, but. I, I, I have always felt that there is no value in saying anything other than what I think about mm -hmm. time frames, about you know, how well things are going and so on. Um, so even though some people think I must be giving these time frames uh, you know, for show, you know, and I can't possibly think that way. It's not true. This is, I, I'm giving an accurate, you know, neither pessimistic nor optimistic um, rendition of what conclusions I've come to by looking at all of the research that has been done, is being done, needs to be done to get us to longevity escape velocity. Is AI impacting the roadmap at all for you in terms of how you plan? Artificial intelligence is undoubtedly playing a really big role in all of this. Um, much of the role that it's playing is not specific to longevity, though. Um, so I guess the most conspicuous example is AlphaFold, the um, program from DeepMind that has essentially solved the uh, very long-standing problem of how, of how to determine a protein's three-dimensional structure from its amino acid sequence. Um, and of course, this has enormous value across the whole of medical research, not just in longevity, but certainly longevity as well. Um, then there are various other organizations using AI to um, develop drugs. And again, you know, this has utility beyond longevity, but some of these companies are very focused on longevity. Um, I think I already mentioned in Celico Medicine, definitely does this, uses very state-of-the-art AI technologies. There's a company in the UK that I'm very fond of called Nuchido, which does the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, BioAge, which is a... a now quite a large company in the Bay Area, um, has, does its own drug development as well now, but it started out uh, basically focusing on AI, still does a bunch of that. So yeah, it's very, very important area. And that will, that will only grow and broaden as AI progresses. Are you, um, I think the surprising thing when you learn more and just take time to dig into someone is like when you learn about all the other things that they're really good at, and I was surprised, uh, I don't know, surprised, like there's no reason to be surprised by this, but like the fact that you really are good and, and love math. And so are you, are you like personally, like keeping up with machine learning and that type of technology or? Yeah, no, I, I, I do math for a hobby, uh, yeah, but I, I, I don't spend too much time on it, but no, it's just recreation. And so it's really got nothing to do with, um, 
I, I don't connect that with the artificial intelligence. Mm. Makes sense. Um, yeah, Matt's fun. I, it's like one of the it's like one of the rare areas where it's like this. The problem is in the like the solution. To the problem is usually in the problem somewhere if you just work it hard enough. Where like life is like there's so many multivariable things going on, right? Um, uh, one of the one of the uh, listeners was asking, and this was uh, my slated question for you as well. Um, is there anything fundamental to the development of longevity of biotechnology that would keep it? Um, not being readily uh, available for the average person. So basically, the Very concern is like, question. rich people are going to yeah. get it or not. Yeah. Very important question. It's absolutely clear to me, 100% certain, that these technologies that will keep people biologically young will be made available to absolutely everybody without any restriction on ability to pay, just as long as those people are old enough to need the therapies, um, almost as soon as it's available to anybody. In other words, as soon as it's been developed. And the reason I say that is not because I have some kind of utopian, you know, view that, you know, that governments will be humanitarian or anything. Um, it's not even really that there will be an electoral imperative, you know, that in other words, it will be impossible to get reelected unless you um, have a manifesto commitment to, to do such a thing. Um, no, the main one is a purely mercenary economic argument. At the moment, when we don't have these therapies, aging is just unbelievably astronomically expensive. The vast majority of the medical budgets of the um, industrialized world goes on the health problems of late life. So the idea is to prevent those problems. And of course, these therapies may very well be quite expensive to, to administer at the beginning, though there will be, as usual, pressure on that to reduce it. Um, but it will be far less expensive even then, even at the beginning, than the money saved by not letting people get sick in the first place. And, and not having to keep them alive in a poor state of health where they're just sucking up um, resources, financial resources. Um, so yes, so I am completely certain that it will be in the economic, you know, mercenary interests of any government. And this applies across the world. It doesn't even just apply to democracies, right? Um, to make sure that they, that they do the front loading of investment, you know, of infrastructure and training and medical personnel and so on. I spend a lot of my time these days making sure that governments are starting to get to understand that, to actually think that through, um, so that they don't get caught by surprise when the therapies come along. But yeah, I think it's going to be all right. So, uh, sweet. I, I think it's um, one thing I always like to think about is like if the billionaires wanted it, they'd want a guinea pig the rest of us. So it's like it's got to work for them to want to use it too. Though I think um, Mark Hamelin um, said that like the actual technology itself, like it's not expensive stuff. It's not like it's like a some rare earth metal. You know, like it's not like really expensive to develop after the development, like the actual implementation of the technology, which I think is really encouraging. Yeah, we, I mean, we shall see. It may be that initially some of it has to be administered surgically, which is inherently more expensive than injections or whatever. We shall see. Is there anything on the docket to be administered surgically? Oh, well, I mean, maybe. Um, for example, in general, solid organs, right? You know, there's a lot going on in an organ. Uh, mm. If we want to rejuvenate it, we have to fix a lot of different types of damage. It might be more straightforward to grow a new one in the laboratory and to surgically transplant it. Um, and uh, even though, I mean, but that would of course be inferior. It would be undesirable in the sense that it would be more invasive. You know, uh, probably couldn't use it on people who are quite so frail, for example. Um, and so there will be enormous pressure to supplant that approach with approaches that can just be done in situ using stem cells and so on. 
Makes sense. And then um, taking a step back, I always like to ask people like, you know, advice for, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but there's so many different people listening right now. So for people who want to get more involved in longevity space, is there generally advice you'd give them? So no, I would not say there's general advice simply because mm. different people have such different skill sets, they can apply them in different ways. So Mark Hamelin's initiative, Less Death, uh, is becoming this fellowship. Um, you know, this is the only single answer I can give to this question because it's deliberately designed to bring very diverse people together and to find out, uh, to, to understand how they can best contribute. Beyond that, I would say that the, um, main thing is to look at what you're good at and in particular to look at what you're good at that other people are not that not many other people are good at and ask how you can apply that so it may be that you're wealthy it may be you're a journalist and you can do something like interviewing me or it may be that you're a biologist and you can choose what field to go into and so on it may be you're a you know a politician and you can influence decision making in congress things like that is there so you have like this really great view of the whole field is there a type of expertise that's just in short supply? Is there like a... Most types of expertise are in short supply, to be honest. Okay. Um, if you ask me what's really changed in terms of the bottleneck for this whole crusade uh, in the past few years, I would say that as the uh, financing of the field has risen over time, that has receded as a problem. It's still a problem. There's still areas, especially the more... Um, um, challenging ones uh, that I focus on, which still need to be funded. But um, really, what's come to the fore is the shortage of talent. And so again, we're coming back to, you know, different people with different skills coming together, finding out how they can best contribute. So biologists, machine learning people, like the whole gamut, there's no like one type, there's just like anyone who would be anyone related to this topic should be really getting into it. I think that's correct. I think that basically, you know, the, it, the, you have to, a large part of why we want to bring people together is, first of all, so that they can learn the things they don't know anything about, just to a baseline level enough, you know, so they have a broad enough understanding of, of what's going on across the board, so that they can apply their particular skills to each other in a more synergistic manner. Mm -hmm. Are there books, like if you were thinking about it from like a person getting into it versus someone who's been in it for a while, or someone who's like, maybe like 10, 15 years below you in experience. Are there books, resources you recommend to help them just push their talent? The books that have been coming out recently are really nice, actually. So my book came out 15 years ago, Ending Aging, and it's still pretty, pretty relevant. You know, it's basically because even though there's been huge amounts of progress since then, nevertheless, the progress has been broadly speaking in the direction that we discussed in that book. Um, but the books that have been coming out recently, you know, we can name a lot of them. So uh, David Sinclair brought out this book uh, called Lifespan, whose subtitle was Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. It's a damn good book. Um, uh, Nir Basile came out with one, I think it's called Age Later. Uh, Andrew Steele, who's a great writer, came out with something called Ageless. Uh, Sergey Young, who's an investor in this space, came out with one. Uh, another investor named Jim Mellon came out with one called Juvenescence. All of these books are damn good and you know, good places to start if you're really at the beginning of the journey. Sweet. And then, um, so as you can guess by the name of my show, I really love learning. Uh, and I'm curious, how do you stay on the top? How, what, are you just reading your own publications? I imagine there's like a big component of just listening to smart people, but... For the longest time, I've actually employed someone full-time to read the literature, publish literature. And I get mm -hmm. a, a, a nightly feed from the main um, biology literature database. And, um, you know, they filter it. 
and send people and send me and a few other people the the output. Um, I also have, you know, basically the, 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 the most important people in my team are the scientific generalists who will have these discussions with me and make it possible for someone to actually make good decisions about what projects to fund, you know, despite only having a certain number of hours in the day. Uh, yeah, very, very important. Yeah, Winston, uh, another British person had a similar strategy, Winston Churchill. He had a like a team of people who would just go out and like research all these things and th synthesize it. And then he'd make it accessible to everyone else, which is it's just interesting to uh, – I know you, you British people like doing that. Yeah, you've got to have that approach, really. And it's yeah. no accident that Winston Churchill and I went to the same school. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I think sometimes people feel like when they look at someone, it's just all them or that uh, they just think like they were just born that way. And so I think when you hear about the structure that you have in place, it helps you do what you, you need to do. I think that helps um, make it a little easier for everybody else. Um, are there particular sectors or areas um, that you're looking to learn more about? I don't think in terms of particular areas that I want to focus on, because the thing about damage repair is by definition, it's a divide and conquer strategy. So, I mean, I guess I prioritize in the sense of looking at the things that are being most neglected by other people. Um, but that comes in many flavors. So it may be that there's an area where we genuinely don't know what the hell's going on at all uh, in terms of the, the mechanisms of accumulation of damage or how we might repair it. Um, there may be areas where we know plenty and we've already got good successes and we want to take those successes to the next stage. So, for example, the project at ICOR is certainly of that nature. So, no, I would say I kind of almost go out of my way not to have uh, one or two things that I'm focusing on. Okay. You never really know how you're going to apply it or how something you're reading is going to be applicable tomorrow. Um, in that vein, has anything su surprised you or just taken you? Like Christmas to a large extent was uh, found on accident. Um, if I remember it right. So has there been other things like that that's just surprised you? It could be little small things. Like, I think there's beauty in every day. There are constant surprises in biology and biomedical research. Some of them are really um, broadly applicable, like CRISPR or induced pluripotent stem cells. Some of them are much narrower, like, um, you know, the whole uh, business of, trans of putting copies of the mitochondrial DNA into the nucleus became a whole bunch easier as a result of a completely uh, uh, unexpected discovery about the way that messenger RNA is moved around in cells. Um, you know, that's just one example that immediately springs to mind, but we, we're constantly having examples of this nature. There was a, there's a new project at Sense Research Foundation, which is focused on a bizarre discovery that we could get antibodies to, end, to, to be taken up by cells Inside, to, to be taken up inside the cell, which is what antibodies don't normally do, um, by attaching nucleic acids to them. You know, what? Um, uh, uh, you know, this kind of thing happens a lot. In fact, it's kind of the meat and drink of biology. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think everyone's born a scientist, and then, like, unfortunately, like, K through 12 makes it uh, not as much fun. Because, um, like, there's very few passionate people who talk about this type of stuff. But um, for, so I focus on you for a little bit. Uh, this is just a question I've been asking everybody, and I've just been enjoying the different way people answer it, but what does is, what is happiness mean to you? What, what does happiness mean to you? Sorry. Fulfillment, really. You know, just feeling that, you know, going to bed at night feeling I've spent the day well. Um, you know, from moment to moment, there's things I, specific things I do to relax, like I spend a lot of time in my hot tub thinking, you know, things like that. But, um, 
Yeah, fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, I once uh, was at a hotel reading a book in a hot tub and everyone was staring at me like I was weird. It's like, you get the greatest ideas when you sit in a hot tub and just relax. Like, it just gets everything moving. It's like uh, going for a walk. Um, do you do anything outside of a, a hot tub to optimize for happiness or uh, self-actualization in that way? I surround myself with people who inspire me. Hmm. Makes sense. And then, um, so I think you just had such a long career. And I'm just generally uh, curious. How do you how do you take care of yourself? You know, like you got you know you, all these grant things. Like the I think even like uh, the stress for people with trying to get a PhD is just ridiculous. So, um, what do you do to just keep yourself, uh, you know, healthy, happy? Keeping going. Well, I mean, it's much easier for someone who's successful and who is widely, you know, admired and respected. So I, I really, you know, I, 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 the people I look up to are the foot soldiers, the people who are every bit as committed as me. But you know, people don't come up to them in the street and ask their autograph or whatever, right? Hmm. So, um, you know, they're, um, you know, they're, they're much more self. Um, motivated because they have to be. I mean, I motivate them to the extent that I see them, of course, you know, that's part of being a leader is you, you know, you give it back, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had it easy that way. Um, I thought you were going to ask about how I stay healthy in terms of like supplements or exercise or whatever. Oh, that's um, on my uh, bonus if we have time, because that's it's, 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 I can give a nice short answer to that question. Because, yeah. um, you know, I actually don't do anything. I hmm. I'm one of those repulsively lucky people who, you know, I can eat and drink what I like and nothing ever happens and I don't need, need to exercise and, you know, I'm always, whenever my biological age is measured in any way, um, I always come out at least a decade younger than I really am. So, you know, uh, for me, uh, the right thing to do, the sensible thing to do is to be conservative and take a, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it attitude. Of course, I still pay close attention to my body and I, I'm, you know, looking out for any things I do need to address, but right now it's going okay. Mm-hmm. Is there, um, do you do any like mindfulness stuff like meditation or anything like that? Okay. No, I'm, I'm already calm. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Um, are there, uh, are, is there any like, I don't know how much time you have for this type of thing, but do you watch movies or, or into anything um, like that, like a, that the Avatar movie or anything? Not all that much. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Okay, so I have a couple of fan write-ins that I thought would be good at this point, which is uh, less personal, but back to longevity. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on the recent research uh, uh, regarding long genes and short genes? This was a remarkable result that came out only a week or so ago. Uh, essentially that a number of diverse species appear to have a shift during their life into having a lower level of transcription of long genes. So long transcripts are just less abundant, whether it's actually low level of transcription or whether the transcripts are destroyed more quickly or whatever, it's not completely clear yet. But the fact that this was a general result that was seen across very diverse species was pretty, you know, um, intriguing. Now, I don't really know what it means, because they certainly, the, the, the study certainly did not show any um, causality in the interesting direction. It didn't show that, for example, you could somehow stimulate the um, transcription of 
long genes in older animals and they would be rejuvenated or anything. It did show the opposite causality, that if you did the typical kind of thing that we already knew was rejuvenating, you know, whether it's calorie restriction or whatever, then, um, then the, um, the, this, 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 this bias with age went away. So we know that it's caused by aging, we just don't know whether there's a reverse causality as well. I'm inclined to guess that there probably isn't. Hmm. Is um, if you if you could, I mean, I guess like if you had unlimited funds, like that's kind of cheating. But how much money it, do you need, like, for the next like five years to do everything? If you just like were maximum uh, capacity at all times, like how much would you need? So there's two answers to a question about money. There's how much do I need for my own organization, yeah. and there's how much does the movement in general need. Mm -hmm. um, so because I tend to focus my efforts at the tip of the spear and to do stuff that hardly anyone you know, really understands the value of, um, I don't actually need all that much money. It tends to be early stage stuff. And you know, so if I had like $50 million a year, which is an order of magnitude more than what I currently have, but it's only one order of magnitude, right? That would probably do the job. Um, Whereas the field in general, if, well, you know, it's, it's now getting to the stage of doing clinical trials, even late stage clinical trials, each one of which costs one hell of a lot of money. So, um, uh, yeah, we're definitely thinking we definitely could spend tens of billions per year in the um, in the community overall. Makes sense. Um, is there you recently were on a YouTube uh, interview and uh, you were saying something along the lines that. Uh, Jeff Bezos and people should be funding these types of research. Um, is there anything stopping you? I mean, I, I imagine it's kind of hard to get a hold of those people. They're also kind of a big name. Um, is it is it harder hard to get those people? To you were saying earlier, like investors get more money than donations. But um, I think even Jeff Bezos is like saying, "Hey, I'm going to donate like a billion dollars, or whatever." So how hard is it to actually get people like that to do that that type of thing? So um, a couple of things. So first of all, the most wealthy people in the world do tend to give quite a lot of money uh, philanthropically. They just don't tend to give it to technology. They tend to give it to, you know, noble causes. And, um, and that's fine, you know, they deserve money too. Uh, but uh, it's useful that a large proportion of the wealthiest people in the world these days got that way through tech. Because tech people, geeks, understand my approach to combating aging quite easily. And in particular, I was very fortunate quite early on, only shortly after I started becoming well-known, that I was asked to speak at TED. That was more than 15 years ago now. And that certainly led to quite a lot of um, useful interest, including money. Uh, some of it led to money immediately, those small, you know, like five-digit checks. Um, but some of it led to like six and seven-digit checks. And um, some of it was a bit delayed. So Jeff Bezos is probably the best example, well, is the best example of this. He um, met me at TED in 06 and every year after that for a few years and was very interested in everything and didn't put any money into the field at all until I think 2018 uh, gave a relatively small amount in an investment into one of the leading companies, Unity. Um, and then suddenly he appears out of nowhere and gives um, a few billion dollars to Altos Labs. So, um, you know, that was a long time coming, but it's better late than never. What do you um, think of Alto Labs? Uh, one of the writers in were talking about how there's just such a density of talent there. Altos Labs has started out 
making good decisions. Certainly, if we compare it to Calico, for example, which made a bunch of really bad decisions when it got going about eight years ago, um, um, one of the big things that Altos has done is it has hired, as you say, a lot of good scientists. The reason that's really important is because this means that um, there's unlikely to end up being a single school of thought that dominates the strategy that is taken within that company. Um, I mean, it's starting out with an emphasis on two areas, partial reprogramming and epigenetic clocks, which are, of course, closely related to each other. Um, but the point is, within those areas, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know, a lot of stuff that needs to be found out. And of course, there's a lot of diversity of opinion among the top people in the field. So the fact that Altos Labs have hired a bunch of the top people in both of those fields um, is a good sign. I think there is unlikely to be stagnation there. And I have a feeling that, I mean, certainly quite a few of the people who they've hired are very strongly, you know, uh, they definitely want progress. They don't just want to do science for the sake of finding things out. Um, so they want, they want to help humanity. And that means that I think there's going to be a good deal of collaboration between Altos and the rest of the ecosystem, which again is something that Calico have been decidedly poor at. Mm -hmm. And uh, just speaking on talent, I remember this question when we were talking earlier. Um, are there up and coming people that inspire you? Um, they don't normally get the limelight. So if, if we get some shout outs, I know a bunch of people who check them out. There are always up and coming people who mm -hmm. are inspiring. Um, I mean, some of those people are not just in the science. So, yeah. um, you know, the crypto community has started putting really proper money into um, into longevity. And that all began with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, who read my book when he was 14. And he started putting proper money into Sense Research Foundation as soon as he was able to. Um, and uh, since then, other people have done the same thing. James Fickle, who is another guy who's not so well known, but he made a bunch of money out of Ethereum a few years ago. He decided he, he read my book over the lockdown in 2020 and um, decided he was hooked. And so he got in touch and he started putting um, quite significant amounts of money into in, into the field and inspiring other people to do the same. So, um, yeah, and of course, I have to mention Richard Hart, who is another big hitter in the crypto community, created the coin Hex, and he's very much a larger than life character. He has a very large and devoted following, and he um, encouraged them to donate to the longevity cause a year and a bit ago, and that resulted in a very healthy amount of money. So, um, so, so, so that's that's one area. But I guess your question was mainly about the scientists. The scientists coming out of anyone. Yeah. yeah, the science is coming out of the woodwork all the time. People that we'd never heard of. There's a guy um, who's really high profile right now, and I get asked about this guy all the time. His name's Michael Levin. He's at Harvard, and he's re really um, um, high profile right now because the way that he is exploring regeneration is completely different from what anyone else has done before, essentially using um, electrical currents, electrical fields to... Um, to uh, cause to stimulate regeneration. Very interesting area that was completely unknown until a couple of years ago. Same applies in cryobiology, which as I mentioned is another area I'm really interested in. You know, again, people just out of the blue coming along um, and becoming really prominent in that area. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, for people who are, I think there's some really good advice about like finding someone who's five years ahead of you. Um, for people who are in college, 
how would they go about uh, finding people like that? Is it just reading papers? Is it just, you know, I don't know. I think Twitter's a good networking tool, but um, what would be your advice there? So, um, there's a couple of things to avoid. And mm. the first and most important thing is not to look for places to study or people to study with who call themselves gerontologists, or at least not to restrict oneself to such people. Because certainly the majority, I would say the large majority of work that is relevant to damage repair is done by people who are doing it for other reasons, or at least who have started out doing it for mostly other reasons. Um, so one needs to understand the field at an introductory level reasonably well, like, you know, having read my book, for example, in order to understand what is relevant and what's not over and above the labels that people put on it, on these things. Mm. Um, and then, of course, one can always, you know, write to me at my foundation um, and, or other people and get advice. I am, um, you know, because of my, because I assign a very high um, importance to educating the world and bringing in and building the community, uh, you know, I, I make sure that such questions get answered. Is there a topic that you see people getting wrong often or that they come to you often looking to learn more about? So like kind of two different questions, but, you know, I think I understand. It's not just different questions. In fact, I would say that they are actually opposite questions because the things people get wrong are the things they think they know already and they don't ask mm. about. Um, uh, but of course, yeah, I mean, a, a, a huge amount of that revolves around the desirability of bringing aging under control or indeed the feasibility in general, as opposed to the nuts and bolts of how. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still have to spend a very frustrating amount of my time explaining things like, you know, uh, we don't have to worry about overpopulation. We don't have to worry about it only being for the rich. We don't have to worry about dictators living forever. And so, um, or, you know, death does not actually give meaning to life, things like that. Um, uh, so I guess those are the things that people mostly get wrong. Um, but yes, people come to us all the time with, um, with questions of every kind. Yeah, have you thought about having like a monthly Aubrey facts? You just like make a post and then everyone, they would be able to just look at that versus uh, email you about them? The thing is that I used to, well, when I ran my journal, Rejuvenation Research, I had, you know, I wrote an editorial every two months, which kind of um, fulfilled the role that you're describing. But of course, I would only get to be talking about uh, one particular thing that was, you know, on my mm -hmm. mind that month, uh, perhaps because of some development or other. Um, I think that... First of all, there are now really good news outlets. For a long time, there weren't very many of, the, it wasn't very much of this. There was this wonderful website that still is wonderful called Fight Aging, run by um, a, a very important person in the community named Reason. Uh, but more recently, we've had this excellent organization, Lifespan.io, which is a, um, well, it doesn't just do journalism, it also has a, a, a community building um, activities of various types. It does a lot of different things, and, I, and it's a 501c3, a non-profit. I, um, I, I, I think very highly of, of Lifespan.io. And also on the for-profit side, like there's a, um, a, a media outlet called Longevity Technology, based in the UK, which is um, you know, does, does a bunch of, you know, advertorials as well as um, other, other news um, 
uh, dissemination, but you know, very thorough, very high quality. So there's a lot of this now, which means that there's not so much need for someone in my position to go out and try and you know, duplicate that. Mm -hmm. It probably makes more sense for people to come to me if they want to. Makes sense. And um, so I think it's always fun when we spend so much time uh, asking questions of someone for you to ask a question as well, which is, uh, what's a question that you have that you don't have the answer to that you wonder about sometimes? <laughs> that I don't have the answer to. I don't really yeah. have. Uh, well, of course, I have questions like, you know, how do I get better at persuading people to, uh, to, to, to donate to the foundation? Things like that. But no, nothing specific. Hmm. There's a book called Never Split the Difference, which talks about uh, negotiation strategies. I recommend it. Every scientist I've met that I've recommended it to, they say it's a, a huge deal, for, especially the sciences. I, I don't know why, but the science people really love it. Um, it, it. Internally in your mind, how old do you feel you are? Oh, I certainly never think about how old I am, uh, even yeah. in my mind. You know, I just get on with my life. Okay. Um, and then uh, just uh, two last questions then. Um, what? How do you maximize your day? Like, how do you get the most out of your day? I get enough sleep. Hmm. I um, I try to be organized. You know, I, I, I'm very much not a fan of cell phones. I like to run my entire non-face-to-face -face life through my inbox, which I find is an efficient way to do so. Uh, you know, I just, you know, um, I just have a, a variety of tricks to make sure I get plenty done. Yeah. Is there uh, anything you recommend people try out or is it just you have to like kind of experiment to find your own? You've totally got to experiment. Everyone's so different. Different people have yeah. such different psychologies, such different temperamental um, reactions to different ways of doing things. So there's no generalization there. Makes sense. Um, all right. Uh, last uh, write-in question then is uh, if you've mentioned Maya, M-A-I-A, -A, biotechnology and conducting promising research and clinical trials to target cancerous cells that express telomeres to lengthen the telomeres but how might how might humanity address the minority of cancers that don't you use telomeres to lengthen the telomeres well that's a very nice technical question so yeah first of all let me give a little background so yes so um cancers are only able to get big enough to metastasize and to kill a large animal like a human being if they can solve what Jim Watson in 1972 called the um, end replication problem, which is that the ends of chromosomes, the telomeres, get shorter when they um, um, when when the cell divides, when the DNA is replicated, and this is something that's really intrinsically built into the um, um, the nature of <coughs> excuse me the nature of DNA replication. Um, so the only way that cells avoid this in the germline, the lineage of cells that goes through to you know, sperm and eggs in the next generation, is by use of an enzyme called telomerase, which essentially compensates for this shortening at the end of the chromosomes and sticks kind of meaningless but nevertheless you know, useful DNA on the end to make sure that the, the to, to keep up with the loss. And um, uh, the thing is, in order to do that, of course, the genome has to contain the gene that encodes this enzyme telomerase. And uh, this gene is robustly switched off, suppressed in nearly all of our cells, because it's not needed, because our cells don't normally divide often enough to need it. Um, but occasionally, uh, but, but, but cancers are able sometimes to mutate it on. And in fact, 90% of cancers do that. 
So the question is, can we use this fact as a way to attack cancers? And I thought of a very elaborate and ambitious way to do this about 20 years ago, which I talked about and I gave the name Wilt. Uh, but it was very, very ambitious. And um, honestly, I'm not sure if it would ever have been um, implementable. However, much more recently, maybe five or six years ago, a group in Texas came up with a brilliant improvement on this that essentially causes cells to um, essentially a drug that poisons um, cells that are expressing this enzyme and it poisons them really effectively really quickly and that drug is called Thio and it's being taken forward by this company that your questioner mentioned Maya Biotechnology uh, I believe the single most exciting thing in cancer right now so I very much encourage people to check it out they are I believe currently recruiting for a phase two clinical trial so yeah totally this is one of my favorite companies however that wasn't the question. The question was, what about the other 10% of cancers that don't express telomerase? Now, these cancers, they still have the same problem. They still need to extend their telomeres um, because otherwise the cell will just have, well, essentially bad things go wrong when telomeres are completely eroded. Chromosomes get joined together end to end, stuff like that. The cell basically divides itself into oblivion pretty quickly. So um, the name for this other mechanism is called ALT, which just stands for Alternative Lengthening of Telomeres. And uh, that name probably suggests that we don't know much about it, which is true. Um, we've been studying it for, like, I mean, people have been studying it for more than 25 years, but it's still a bit of a mystery. Uh, but we're not nearly so much of a mystery as it used to be. Ten years ago, we actually had a project at Sands looking at this, which didn't really get anywhere, and other weren't getting anywhere either. But lately, there's been a bit more progress. People are beginning to understand it better. So I can't point, it, point the questioner or the audience to any specific, you know, fantastic new intervention along the lines of this thing Thio I just mentioned for telomerase. Uh, but we may not be very far off. And certainly this is one area which I may very much want us at LEV Foundation to start working on if we can bring in enough resources to, to, to be able to. Sweet. So uh, anyone, especially the person who wrote this, should uh, donate. And if they have some ideas on how to address it, like they definitely uh, should reach out. Oh, yeah. um, so is for so we talked about a variety of topics. Is there anything going on at Lev or are your other projects that we haven't got a chance to talk about that we can talk about real quickly? And if not, you know, what's the best way to stay up to date? Um, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, we don't just do research. We also do advocacy. We're supporting a lobbying organization in the U.S. Uh, called A4LI, the Alliance for uh, Longevity Initiatives, which is focused on trying to um, uh, improve the um, quality of debate within Congress around longevity and to obviously encourage Congress people to uh, put more money into this research from the tech, from the public purse. Uh, we're also funding another organization in the um, longevity space named um, the Healthspan Action Coalition, who, which is again an advocacy organization, but this time its audience is the general public, especially the older generation. Uh, so I like to call it the antidote to the AARP. It's much more focused on getting the elderly to understand that there is hope um, in relation to bringing aging under medical control. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, these organizations both have their own websites, but you can get to them linked from levf.org, from, from LEV Foundation's website. And um, uh, so, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the spectrum of what we're doing at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really what I want to say. Just go to our website and read more. 
Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.